for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing Journey Smollett. I mean, this is a special show, and I, I know sometimes you listen to the show and you may tune out before the end, before we get to the before I let you go. I want to tell a story about a young man whose family I represent now who died about two years ago at the hands of the Broward County Sheriff's Department. It's a, it's a story you don't want to miss. I want to talk about Jarvis Randall at, at the end of the show. Um, but before we get the journey and Jarvis, I wanted to talk about the vice president's trip to Asia this week. As the crisis unfolds in Afghanistan and China continues to exert its influence across Asia and Africa, articulating the administration's foreign policy to counter China's influence is key. And the vice president is delivering that message in her trip to Vietnam and Singapore. If you recall, the vice president was also dispatched to Central and Latin America. And I'd imagine that when this administration articulates its posture towards uh, the Caribbean and Africa, the vice president would be the most logical face of the administration and of the United States. So if you keep in score, that would be Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa and Asia before it's all said and done. Listen, folks, that matters. The only legitimate critique of the vice president during the 2020 campaign, and it was legitimate, was her lack of foreign policy experience. But. If it's not clear by now, President Biden is ensuring that the vice president is at the table as the U.S. reestablishes his credibility abroad and responds to international crises. Not the least of which is the rising threat of China in reestablishing the United States public health leadership abroad. I try not to look too far ahead to 2028, but what should be clear here is that the president has no hesitation when it comes to Vice President Harris being the face of this administration to the world, and she's very much at the table on all matters of foreign policy, strengthening a perceived weakness in a major way as we look ahead to the future with Afghanistan and Haiti in crisis, China expanding its sphere of influence, real challenges at the southern border, and a global health pandemic still raging, all while repairing the reputational damage done by President Trump. It's all hands on deck, and the vice president's hand is proving to be a capable co-pilot to that of President Biden's, and that's something we can all appreciate, and that's that on that. Oh, man, today is another special day on the Bakari Sellers podcast. I have somebody who has, it feels like, been a part of our lives for so very long, and uh, she's just been an amazing creator, content creator, and actress, and all around great human being. Uh, Journey Smollett, what's going on? How are you? How you doing, man? How you doing? Thank you. That's so kind. All the words you said, I really appreciate it. No, I feel like you've been. A, I mean, you you've always been there. Whenever you uh, touch the screen in whatever role it is, or whenever we see you representing, you ought to always utilize your platform well, and and at least bring us a smile. So I think your art, you're doing your art well. So look. We start each episode by having our guests kind of walk us through the arc of their career. And you've been in front of the screen most of your life as you destroy that water. That was impressive. Talk to me about how you landed your first role, if you can recall, and the moment that you decided you wanted to be an actress. Yeah, it's 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 tricky. It's kind of deep. You know, I've been in front of the camera since I was 10 months old. And so while it kind of chose me, and was chosen for me, there were several moments throughout my career that I had to re-choose it. You know, I had to make the choice to choose it again. You know, I, I was doing it for fun as a kid. The way 
kids play little league or soccer or something. But um, so I started in like commercials and modeling in New York. I mean, doing things like modeling with Bugs Bunny. <laughs> you know, my very first commercial was a Pepsi commercial with Joe Montana. Oh wow! I, I was three years old, three and a half years old, and then I did like a Cheerios commercial in Florida. But it was yeah, I started doing like sitcoms. You know, my very first. TV show was a pilot. I played Debbie Allen's daughter when I was three and a half on a pilot for NBC called um, Out All Night. And it had Diane Carroll, who was my grandmother in it, Debbie Allen, and Cab Calloway. And, and I Did mean- Did it get picked up? Because I don't recall that one. No, it didn't get picked up. But I, I did like a lot of TV when I was a kid. And my very first film was- when I was, I was cast when I was seven and a half or eight, something like that. Francis Ford Coppola cast me in his film Jack um, with Robin Williams. And I remember that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, what I like to say is my training happened on sets. My training, I was fortunate enough from very early age to work with the greats. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola was my first film director, right? And I learned how to improv from Robin Williams. And my second film was a film called Eve's Bayou, which I played Eve. <laughs> you, you, you dropped that subtly, like it's not one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> you know, and so I'm, I'm quite blessed to have been put on a path in which I was able to learn by doing and learn from the masters. You know, Samuel Jackson in Eve's Bayou taught me so much about the craft when I was 10 years old. And that's really when I knew I wanted to do it. Working with Sam and Casey Lemons, who was our director, and Amy Vincent, the DP, and Lynn Woodfield. I mean, these are the images that I remember, the, the folks who had such an impact on me. And I clearly remember the moment when I knew I wanted to do this forever. And I was in a scene with Sam. And it's a scene where Eve is asking Sam, Sam's character, Lewis, why he never dances with her. Mm. And the beauty in Casey's script is really the subtext is, I just saw you cheat on my, my mother. I don't know what, you know, is going on. But as a little kid, little kids don't know how to process all that. So they go to the, the next thing that is bothering them. And I remember think being able to, for the first moment, think as a character and do something that the character would do based on her thoughts and the emotions that she was feeling. And losing yourself in the character in that way was a high, almost. I didn't know at the time how to articulate that, but that's what I was experiencing. But that artistic power, right? To create, to, to be used as a channel mm -hmm. through which you can create. And, and what real, what acting does, part of the beauty of acting is it illuminates the truth in humanity. And that simple thing of being able to think as a character, I was able to achieve that in that moment in which I think I gave him a hug. And I'm, I'm kind of like, my face is kind of a mask and then I dropped the mask. And I remember thinking, that Eve would drop that when she hugs him and that the hug would feel, it would give her the permission to kind of really feel what she's feeling in that moment. And I remember 
being so, <laughs> you know, again, I didn't know how to articulate what I was feeling, but that for sure I knew in that moment, like, oh, I want to do this forever, actually. Like, this That's is- a dope story. You're all, but you're but you're also from arguably, and you just mentioned your grandmother, one of the more talented families in the industry. Oh, I mean, yeah. how did how did you guys cultivate and nurture such a talented group of creatives? And what's it like being part of such a trailblazing family of artists? Oh wow! Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I feel fortunate because I know I am who I am because of whom I come from. You know, my my mother, my brothers, my sister. Everybody's so creative in my family and involved in the arts. And growing up, you know, we weren't, we didn't really watch the typical stuff. Like our house was so filled with art, whether it was Sound of Music being on or Stevie Wonder being on a vinyl player or, you know, my mother analyzing some form of art or writing or throwing me, you know, a a Harriet Tubman biography when I was eight. You know, she was constantly feeding into us. And I know that's what I bring to every role is that curiosity and that love for the craft because of the family I was raised in. I mean, we would watch films and debate, you know, a performance and analyze a scene. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've debated Robin Williams' monologue in Good Will Hunting. <laughs> you know, we're losers in that way. Yes. And, and so even to this day, there's some of my biggest fans. And I say this is day, my mom is my biggest fan and my harshest critic. And it's, it's a beautiful thing because um, she tells the truth. She will tell me when I've done trash. <laughs> <laughs> that type of honesty is, is, is slightly refreshing, to say the least. <laughs> you need it. I'm drawn yeah. to that. I don't want bullshit. I don't yeah. want dishonesty. Like, I'm constantly searching for truth. You know, it. Dishonesty doesn't serve me. In what way would it serve me? It don't. You know, even to this day, my mom, I'm like, if she likes it, we're doing good, y'all. <laughs> well, let's talk about something I know she loves, which is Lovecraft Country. For folks who've been under a rock, what is Lovecraft Country and who is Letty Lewis? Oh, Lovecraft Country is a series about... Oh, man, this is so funny. I want to hear you describe it like in the elevator because it just has so many tentacles that if somebody were to ask me, I'd be like, sit down. <laughs> Let me tell you about this. <laughs> sent me, someone sent me a video of this comedian on Instagram who was like trying to describe the craft country. <laughs> like, well, and there's like, you know, a grown man with a uh, an infant baby uh, head on it. And he's like, <laughs> And it was hilarious. I was cracking up because it's, it's, it's true. Like, how do you describe Lovecraft Country? Okay. Yes. I mean, it's essentially, it begins as the story of Atticus Freeman, who is a Korean War veteran played by Jonathan Majors, who returns home to Chicago after his father's gone missing. He goes on a road trip with his Uncle George, played by Courtney B. Vance, and his friend, Letitia Letty fucking Lewis, played by me. Um, to find his dad. And we, along the way, discover the horrors of Jim Crow America, but also the horrors of Lovecraft Country in that monsters and magic exist. And our Mm. world is turned upside down as a result of this discovery. 
What was it about the script? Because it, it had a little sci-fi type element to it in black folk and sci-fi. Usually the, the perception is that they're not symbiotic, which we know not to be true. But what was it about this script and the character that made you go after this role? What jumped off the pages to you? You know, Misha has a gift. Misha Green, the writer, who I worked with on Underground, she has such a gift for um, flipping a subject matter on its head, right? You know, no one thought I should take on Underground. Very few people, like a lot of folks in my life were like, why are you going to go and do a TV show about enslaved people? Like, why would you do that? We don't need that. And but you have a you have a you, your characters. You mentioned it earlier, and I'm just now drawing this line. But your characters always have this um, this kind of cultural pragmatism, like they from Eve's Bayou to uh, Underground to even Lovecraft Country. There's always this element of understanding timing. It's like you have an old soul, maybe, and it comes out in these in these uh, characters that you play. I've been told that most of my life that. <laughs> Sam would always say, you're not a tale, you're a 40 year old. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I am drawn to characters that, yeah, that feel timeless. I, it is true. I, I'm drawn to certain universal themes and qualities. And I, I think it's because as an artist, I'm hungry to explore that in myself and exercise those things out myself. You know, with Lovecraft Country, it felt like, for one, the script was so radical. I mean, it was a radical reimagining of the genre. It felt so disruptive and yet felt so uniquely familiar. I mean, it's essentially a family drama, you know? Yeah. We all have them. <laughs> we all have them. And it's like, well, one person's desperately trying to put their family back together. One person is struggling to find a family. One person is trying to protect their family, you know? and all these these um, these themes that we can relate to. And with Letty, oh my gosh. You know, when I read the very first scene and the way she's introduced, instantly felt called to play this woman and felt so totally convinced that can't nobody do this but me, Misha. What the hell? You know? Um, and you were right. You I don't I can't even imagine anybody else playing that role. Well, that's it. That's a massive maybe maybe Carrie Washington, but you and Carrie are the only two people who can do it on that level. Listen, Carrie Washington's a queen. She can do it. Yeah. Um, I yeah. I mean, I just felt that you know there was all these in the first scene. You learn well. Here's a woman, black woman in 1955 Jim Crow America, right? Who can't afford to buy stockings and yet has dreams of pioneering into an all-white neighborhood and buying a home. I mean, she has been missing from her sister's life to the point that her sister has had no contact, doesn't know where she's just flown in from. And yet they have this sisterly bond and she didn't go to her mother's funeral. What is that rejection about? Why all these contrasting ideas and themes that existed in this one scene made me so hungry to know who she was. And I was so curious to understand her more. And yet, oddly, felt like I, I did understand her. I felt like I knew her. And that is, is kind of how I pick my characters. If I feel like, oh, I know this person, and yet I don't, I'm hungry to unearth more. I'm like, I'm it, you know. And there's so much of Letty in me, you know, um, and so much, so many ways that I'm not like her, too, yeah. um, that I have to say. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's probably a good thing in certain ways. Yeah. <laughs>
let me ask you this. The success of Lovecraft was, I mean, y'all did a million viewers, 1.5 million viewers on HBO um, with the uh, season one finale. Uh, by the time, excuse me, with the premiere, with, by the time the finale was reached, y'all hit 10 million viewers. Were you surprised by this level of success? I mean, that's astronomical type numbers. And was this the type of success you were envisioning when you read it or were you caught off guard by how popular this was? I was not imagining. No. This is this the biz- is this is this the biggest reception you've gotten for a project? Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I no. I, I you, you never know how a project's going to be received. Yeah. You some of, some of them just, you know, they just land flat. Yeah. There's, <laughs> I've done projects that I thought, oh, my goodness, this product's going to be so beautiful and impact and, you know, and people might discover it later on or whatever. No, the, so I've kind of stopped trying to predict that or go there in my head at all because again, it don't serve the work. And but you're and, nominated. You're nominated now for Emmy for best leading actress in a drama series. I mean that. So when you go home, I mean, and your mama talking cash money trash to you. I mean, do you just point at the nomination? And be like, slow down. Like, <laughs> is that is that do, how does that feel amongst the family? Your success. Oh, I mean, it's so cool. My family's so, they're so proud. I mean, all of them called me instantly. My mom didn't know. I called her. <laughs> she don't care about none of that stuff, but she was very proud. She was so proud. And um, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an honor, you know, but I, I, I do have to say, you know, you don't do it for that. I've done it too long to have that as a goal, but it, it's, it's hell yeah. It's incredible. I'm not gonna lie, it feels hella good, you know, <laughs> to see the work being appreciated and recognized um, and seen. Yeah. So let me ask you this. I mean, the recognition, we talked, I mentioned this briefly, but I think it's even more profound. And I this this is the question that that I underlined that I wanted to ask you because we talked about Eve's value, the great debaters and underground. But is there any added pressure in your experience portraying these eras in Black history that are often just freighted with so much trauma to portray these characters in a way that's both authentic to the period and the role, but also entertaining? I did not feel pressure about any of those characters except for Underground, I have to say. I I did feel pressure stepping into the world of Underground because... I still desperately wanted to get it right and but not get it right in just the sense of like, oh, we're we were trying to tell an aspect of history that is undertold, that has been erased, about the rebellion, about the radicalization, about the folks who did fight back. And yeah, I did feel pressure with that of like shit, we gotta get this right. You know, you, but, got, you can't and, miss you can't miss on on a movie called Underground. Y'all, no, y'all, <laughs> y'all would not be invited back to the beauty shop, the cookout. <laughs> well, yeah, because I'm very much so aware of the way our historical narratives have been hijacked in the past. How our trauma—it's sometimes trauma porn. How how you know we are so hungry to see the truth of who we have. And I'm I'm some I'm somebody who will publicly say like I don't want to see any more slave movies i'm tired of seeing but you know there's certain ones that were done so well and under, underground is a part of that thank but you Appreciate too often we, you know, we miss yeah but here's the thing i look at pressure 
I love, I, I, I'm not, I think of myself as an athlete and I grew mm-hmm. up watching sports. For so you're the, you're the Kobe of this, huh? Who, 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 if we were choosing any athlete for Journey to be in the image of, who would it be? You LeBron, you Kobe, you Dennis, you Dennis Rodman, you go crazy in the locker room before, or you Ron Artest, you drinking Hennessy before you go out to tell me. I mean, here's the thing. You know, when we were doing Lovecraft Country, me, Jonathan, and Michael termed each other like we were the squad. Yeah, Michael, Pippen, and Rodman. Um, I definitely saw myself as Pippen. You know, I, Jonathan was Jordan, and Rodman was for sure Michael. But in life, okay, we're talking about the grand scheme of it. I draw so much inspiration from from. Well, three athletes really inspire me so much. It, it's always been Michael Jordan. LeBron, I'm a massive LeBron bandwagon. They like. Oh, I'm a late. I'm a late. People like you. How long you been a Lakers fan since LeBron went there? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I became a Lakers fan the second LeBron went to the Lakers. Was never a Lakers fan prior to that. Exactly. That is me. Don't care about Cleveland anymore. Don't care about Miami. I mean, yeah. And so Michael Jordan, LeBron, and Serena. I mean, I just oh. look at the way these folks approach pressure, you know, Michael Jordan and his flu game, you know, I mean, it's one of the greatest games of all time. Okay. Yeah, he was actually food poison. Did, but let me ask you this. Speaking of Serena, did you see the trailer for King Richard? Yes. Isn't that so dope? I, I, I cannot wait to see it. I cannot wait to see it. My, a friend of mine is the director, Ray Green, and I texted him just telling him how proud I was of him. And I, I can't wait to see, first of all, I got to talk about my girl, Anjanou. That she, I mean, she is, I can't wait because just the lean back in the chair, yeah. I mean, I'm sold. And then when Will, when Will comes in, I, I just am like, oh, I can't wait to see what they've created. You know, That's going to be so dope. So my last question is this. We're all familiar with your career in television and film. But one of the things I've been watching is your advocacy in so many other areas. And it runs the gamut from your leadership with the Children's Defense Fund to criminal justice reform, to your advocacy around HIV and AIDS. Talk about the causes and organizations that are keeping you the busiest, specifically your work around federal policing and criminal justice. And why did you get in that work? And what keeps you motivated to stay engaged? Oh, oh wow. That was a big yeah. question. I should have used the comma or period or something. Like that. <laughs> I hear sounding like Don Lemon with that question. I need to go. He rubbing <laughs> off on me. <laughs> oh, man. I mean... Here's the thing. I, I guess I don't look at it as like, oh, this is my, you know. Um, my mom was an activist. You know, my mom, I grew up hearing stories about Angela Davis. You know, of my course, mom, yeah. And my dad met in the movement in the Bay in Oakland, um, working with Angela and Fanya and, and the whole crew, you know. And, and, and so it's a part of my DNA, you know, to serve the community, give back to it's what my brothers, my sister, we all, we are all involved in, in it in some way or, or another, only because that's who our mother is and was. Mm-hmm. And it's just an extension of who I am. It's not like I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself not doing something about <laughs> it. You know, I honestly, one of the, I, I remember... <laughs> So I, I campaigned, um, I was a surrogate for Obama in 08 and in 12. And I would go around, they would send me around to different college campuses speaking of young kids and doing 
voter um, education and voter registration and stuff. And it was such food for my soul to feel like I was directly involved in change, right? I, I feel like I got more out of it than I could ever give. And that's what I feel with all of these causes that, you know, I, I try to give time to, whether it's Time's Up or my homie Kendrick Sampson. I mean, that brother is just always doing something like, what can I help? What, what, what hand do you need lifted up right now? You know, um, I, I feel like whether, yeah, the work that someone like a Patrice Colors does, okay, and like the whole crew with Black Lives Matter and, yeah. You know, for me, participating in any work like that is food for my soul, because when I see injustices happening, I can't just sit back and like not do something. I I would go crazy. I would be scratching these walls out. I mean, it already makes me crazy. Well, you know, but that's some everybody doesn't see it like you. And it's so refreshing to hear that because there's some people who have their careers and say, I'm an artist. And you have two spectrums. You have an artist who does not get themselves educated and goes out on stages and loses all their revenue <laughs> after they make dumb comments instead of just taking the time to learn. And then you have other artists who are not where you are, who's on the other end, who just simply say, that's not my task. That's not my role. I'm going to just sit here and be comfortable. So it's refreshing to see you. Listen, you on the I, forefront. I, I don't judge. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't say this is how everyone has to be, right? For me, I, yeah. I have too much energy that has to be channeled in some way. Yeah. And and so it's either going to be channeled in a very creative, constructive way, or it's going to be channeled in a very destructive way. And I don't want to destroy stuff. Okay? Yeah. I want to build. I want to create uh, uh, and find that that's where I'm best served or else I'm going to be burning shit down and let's let's keep you from committing arson let's keep you in the forest. i don't want to do that outside of my characters my characters can do that (laughs) but journey we're not doing that well journey thank you so very much for spending some time on the bakari sellers podcast i know you are working 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 so i hope you enjoy the rest of your day you too thank you so much for the love and support always be blessed before i let you go I mentioned in my intro, and I want to mention again, a young man named Jarvis Randall. Jarvis Randall was 30 years old when he was shot and killed by the Broward County Sheriff's deputies in December of 2008. It was on the 10th day of his stay at a psychiatric hospital in Tamarack, Florida. It was University Hospital. Now, uh, when Jarvis was having some mental health issues, he called his mother and his mother said, you should go to the emergency room, which Jarvis did. He went to the emergency room and he was Baker acted, which means he was put on a um, involuntary hold for up to 72 hours. But after that, that's where the story gets a little fuzzy. And Jarvis many times said that he wanted to leave. But on that fateful day, Jarvis was leaving, going to uh, his father's funeral. Uh, he wanted to go and attend his mother's ex-husband, but his father's funeral. Angela Randall, who's my client, who is Jarvis's mother, uh, was making provisions along with his sister to go and pick him up after the funeral, uh, do whatever needed to be done. Jarvis was walking up and down the hallways of this hospital unarmed, just wanting to leave, when the hospital actually made the calculated but deadly decision to call the Broward County Sheriff's Department. The sheriff's department uh, showed up, um, and after 
some time talking to Jarvis. They cracked the door open. He was behind a fire door in a hallway by himself, not harming anyone. They fired shots um, first. They fired beanbags, which missed Jarvis. Then they fired bullets, um, which killed and murdered Jarvis. The coroner's report said and the emergency room doctor said that there were so many bullets that they could not count. On this past Thursday, on behalf of the family, we released the video uh, showing the final and fatal encounter that Jarvis had with the Broward Sheriff's deputies. And lo and behold, it actually offers a totally different perspective than the original police narrative. You know, the police came that, that Jarvis was armed with a, a glass weapon and it was actually just plastic. Um, they said that he was displaying aggressive behavior while he's actually in a separate room from the deputies for the entire episode with no one in sight and no one in any danger. You know, the most amazing thing is at the final encounter, uh, police, they breach the door to get to Randall. Then they fire beanbag bullets at him. He runs away from them, trying to get out through the doors at the, end of the other end of the hallway. Um, and then he runs back towards the deputies where one of them armed with a long rifle in a mental health facility shoots. You know, I was quoted as saying that he's in a hospital. This is not a criminal by any stretch. All they had to do was fire the beanbags and then close the door. One of my colleagues who's helping me on this case, Michael Bernstein, said that he was showered with bullets. The emergency room doctor who pronounced Randall dead said that the bullets were too numerous to count. And so now we're filing a lawsuit. And the reason that I wanted you all to know his name is because this happens too much. But even in this incident, we have a young black boy who died in a mental health hospital trying to seek treatment that he needed. It's an all too common occurrence. And that's that on that. We'll see you on Thursday for another great episode.